0: From the HBA podcast studio in New York City, welcome to the Medium Rules. I'm Alan Baldishan. He has tapped into something essential.
1: You see an end of, of centralized institutional trust.
0: The anxiety is, is, is there. We're feeling this. Like everyone's mm-hmm. feeling yep. something's not quite right. There is a massive investing bubble going
1: on. It's about kind of control, power, hierarchy, centralization, reducing friction. That's, that's fantastic. That, that really resonates, I must say.
0: Joining me in the uh, HBA podcast studio uh, today is Ari Wallach, CEO of Longpath Labs. Longpath is a 501c3 organization, which has as its mission promoting and advocating for long-term modes of thinking about synthesizing and responding to humanity's greatest long-term challenges. Ari has been working at the intersection of public policy, organizational design, and innovation strategy for over 20 years. In addition to being the CEO of Long Path Labs, Ari is also the founder and CEO of Synthesis Corp, an innovation strategy consulting firm with clients ranging from Fortune 100 firms to activist networks on the front lines of social equality. Ari's TED Talk discussing Longpath has received 1.7 million views to date. Clearly, he has tapped into something essential. So,
1: Ari... Point seven of those views These are my mom just no, that, be, that's just okay.
0: Yeah, they count too so it's really um, only a
1: million original, but yeah
0: okay. Um, seven hundred thousand uh, likes from your mom easily okay um, That's with the Jewish mother. I, yep. I got to get on that what uh, so so let me ask you this what what have you tapped into? Clearly, there's something going on with a long path that's hit a nerve. Um, what do you think that is?
1: I think it's a confluence of a, of a couple different issues. Um, so just to, to step back for a second, when I was running Synthesis Corp for the past 10 years, I would meet with CEOs, executive directors, heads of foundations. And in the very beginning when I started this, they say, we, we want to talk about the future. You know, we, we want to go out 10, 15, 20 years. And then about a year ago, I was sitting down with the Fortune 17 CEO. It was not number 17, though. And and he he said, I I want to talk about the future. I want to talk about how we're going to tackle it and kind of own the future. I want to talk about the next six months, right? That that was the future. It was six months. We went six month window. That was a six month window. Um, And while that was happening, I was also noticing more and more, and really over in the really in the past year, people's kind of ability to not only just think into into the far future or future for themselves, but also to think past has kind of gone away. So what Long Path is tapping into is that people are feeling that we're kind of in this ahistorical moment, right? We've we've had a good 300 year run since the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And now things our trust in institutions uh, in each other and in some ways even in ourselves, as we learn about kind of how we're manipulated so easily uh, on social media all of that is kind of falling apart and we find ourselves kind of just stuck in this inner tidal moment. And so what Long Path is tapping into is people's both kind of understanding of this moment, both from a political, from a business, but also from kind of a, a self-identified realm of how they can think, or in this case, not think clearly about what is next to come. And I think that's why it's resonating both, both, in, both in the TED Talk, but when I give talks and in people who are kind of joining up within this long path movement, they're all saying the same thing. They, they want something to connect to and be connected to that's bigger than themselves and bigger than the moment. But before even going into that, recognizing that we're stuck in a moment.
0: Do you think that this ahistoricism with, that you're somewhat describing or describing as intertidal is generational? In other words, do you find that there's uh, more anxiety, if you will, Associated with millennials, or is it just sort of above that? Does it transcend uh, millennials? Does it transcend race, age, demography categories like that?
1: I I think at this point in time, right now in in twenty eighteen, it's it's transcending of all those. That being said, because you bring up something, if we're talking about gender or race or class. People in those communities, and I won't speak stereotypically, but have been feeling this ahistoricism for a while. They've kind of like left out of it. When we see this in the in the developing uh, worlds, feeling how there's kind of this bifurcation between those who are doing well and those who are doing worse, and they feel kind of left behind, and now they're just kind of stuck. Right? That's at an economic level, but and we we have that in race. We we see institutional failure across the board. To be honest, those in the kind of what i'd say socioeconomic um ruling classes and elites are now starting to feel what's been happening for a really long time um and we see this you know there was a many you know decade plus ago many years ago more than that there was like a crack up ep- epidemic in this country which was In many ways, it's a criminal justice issue, but it's also about kind of loss of meaning and purpose and jobs and a whole bunch of set of issues. And we didn't pay that much attention to it. Now we have this massive opioid crisis, which everyone's paying attention to because it's very much a white thing. But the same things that led to those kind of drug-based epidemics um, are, are the same kind of underlying loss in trust and meaning in institutions. We're just noticing it more now, among kind of the higher realms of, of what we would consider the kind of institutional elites who in some ways were not having to deal with it as much. Let's just put it that way earlier on. Okay. Um,
0: and so long path and long termism is a, what is a mode of thinking to address the challenges that are inherent in this anxiety, um, maybe just d- describe i don't want to call it the 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 remedy but the 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 chain the paradigm shift i guess, yeah so, are-
1: so, yeah, so long path at the end of the day it's a mindset right so it's a mindset shift um and we we at long path and those who are connected with us see ourselves like i said in this intertitle and the intertitle is really this this liminal space between what was and what is to be um, and this this happens every probably every couple of three, four hundred years, um, and in some ways it's happening even faster now. So long path isn't meant to be the next thing that comes after. No, it, it's meant to be a mindset that helps us bridge between what was and what is to be. What is to be, we have no idea. To step the conversation up just one degree, our understanding of human consciousness and the norms and cultures and values of what makes up a society even be- any given point in time, we refer to as like a civilizational OS, right? So every couple of hundred years, there's kind of a new OS. And, and consciousness is one way of thinking about that, but there's more to it than that. And so long path you can think of is as this kind of mindset to help us navigate from one OS to the next OS. I don't know what the next one will be. I have some ideas about probably what is necessary. And, you know, it it's... The next OS will look, the next civilization OS will probably take many of its cues from what we're actually seeing in the technological realm, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. in terms of decentralization and rethinking of trust and platforms, um, not to stretch the analog too much. So as a mindset, long path rests on kind of three pillars. The, the first one, um, in some ways the most obvious and it's the most important um, is the difference between the future and futures with an S. So more often than not, I'm, I'm, a, I'm asked to speak on a panel like the future of media, right? Or the future of work. That's a big one. I get, I get that a lot. And the, I don't have a problem with the idea of tomorrow, the future. I'm not nihilist in that way. It's that when you say the future of, it makes it seem as if there, it's a one single point in time out there. And so what we do and what more people in the kind of futuring realm are doing is we're not talking about the future of, we're talking about futures of, this plurality. Because what it does is it opens up this adjacent possible. So it's not just about the future that's going to happen, because way that future never happens. And more about preferable futures that can happen. It's almost, you can almost think of it as a cone, right? And so we're at the bottom, we're at the very tip of it, and instead of it being a direct line out to tomorrow, which tomorrow could be five years, 15, 20 years, think of it more of a kind of like an ice cream cone and anything within that entire kind of circumference is, is possible. So that's, that's the first pillar of this mindset. The second one we, we call transgenerational empathy. And what that means is when you think about problems or to be honest, think about investments, right? We, I was just with someone last night who wanted to know how to apply long path thinking to private equity. Uh, and so the the conversation we had was around kind of what what, transgenerational empathy. So that means thinking about a time and and those to come after you. Now, the the obvious thing when you think about transgenerational is after you as your own person. So basically after your death, many generations out. But you can also think about that as a CEO. What are you doing for the next CEO that's going to come after you? So what's obvious and inherent within thinking transgenerationally is you have to rid yourself of some ego, right? It's either Of egoic death, and we can get into the philosophy of that, um, or the ego that you are the last CEO of GE, or you are the last CEO of Boeing. And the question is, what are you doing to set that up? Now, where we find, and the reason we say empathy and not just transgenerational thinking, the reason it's beyond cognitive, it's more emotional, is because you really have to put yourself in their shoes. You can't expect yourself to just think your way through it, right? It's not a brute force thing, transgenerational and empathy places you in a way where it puts you in in a state of mind and emotional stance where you truly start to understand what are the needs of those that come after you. The other part of transgenerational empathy that we've been starting to emphasize is it doesn't just go forward, it also goes backwards. So it's also recognizing what the CEO went through before you, if you're the CEO, or what generations before you did, what they sacrificed to get there. And what that does is it sets up a key part of kind of the overall gestalt of long path, which is how do you make yourself... Be a great ancestor to generations to come, right? Like we, we're we're all descendants from our ancestors, but us, listen, us, you and I, Alan, and, and those who are listening, are actually someone's great great ancestors, right? And so the question is, how do you hook up your future gen, you know, your future descendants? It's easy for us to do it when you know the, the easiest way this happens for is parents. We're constantly making kind of short term sacrifices, right, for our for our children. The question is, how do we do this at a much larger level? And then so this gets to the third pillar of long path which is what we call telos T E L O S which is Greek for ultimate aim and purpose and so in the in 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 the odyssey Odysseus was trying to get back to Ithaca he goes you know he sails far away and there's a shipwreck, and the entire long story, the entire, literally, the odyssey is trying to get back to Ithaca and get back to his wife and Penelope and get back into power. But through all the kind of trials and tribulations that he comes up against, because he has this ultimate goal of getting back, goal of getting back to Ithaca, he's able to always navigate. Ithaca in some ways becomes both a, a lived goal, but also a, a North Star, and the the kind of key part of why i think we founded long path and we're being successful right now is cuz we're saying and there's there's an article by david brooks about this about a year ago that we're in a telos crisis. I think he and i are the only people who like to use telos publicly, but that we we've lost this kind of ultimate aim and purpose both as, as companies, as investors, in some way even as parents and and definitely at the kind of societal or civilizational realm. So that that's the Long overview of long path, but why we think it's kind of resonating is because these pillars that act as a mindset to get us from here to there um, are missing in the general society. Like everything I just mentioned, it's a future-based society. We're not transgenerational and we have (laughs) no clear goal. We're bringing those things back and putting them on the table and it's resonating with a lot of folks because I think all three of those pillars are actually endemic to human nature.
0: Mm -hmm. So how are you creating... Or are you creating community um, around long path? And and if so, what does that look like? Like, How do you sort of go about promulgating uh, these pillars and this mindset and and actually kind of trying to affect and implant this way of thinking about our big challenges and and, and some of the megatrends that you, you guys identify, which we'll discuss in a second, how do you how do you get those out in the world? What, what, what's, what's sort of your, your, your ground game, if you will?
1: The ground game. So we, you know, and this is probably not the best kind of taxonomy to think about it, but we, we think about long path both in, in terms of that promulgation as a kind of a, there's a B2C and a B2B, B, right? Uh, and, and, and we'll start with the B2B, with, with B, which is business to business. And so that's, bring this way of thinking into organizations and to philanthropists and to foundations and to government agencies. And that's through, you know, in some ways it's kind of basic block and tackle. It, it's conversations, it's dinners, it's workshops, it's trainings, it's me flying around much to the chagrin of my family and giving these kind of these keynote talks and introducing this mindset as a way to help folks navigate this current time. Um, so that's kind of, that's at the B2B side. On what we the classic B2C is we have started running a series of workshops. We just, we ran one um, at Lincoln Center here in New York with 200 people RSVP'd and that was very different. What we had people do is come over the course of three and a half hours, go through a series of exercises that connect them to their future self. And, and the reason why is a priori of being able to do like far out future thinking, you have to get, uh, for future generations, it's important to get people comfortable with thinking about even the idea of their future self. So someone on our scholarly, uh, Hal Hirschfield, who's a professor at UCLA, did this really interesting experiment where, where he put a bunch of folks into fMRI machines. And what he did was... What, I apologize. What functional magnetic resonance imaging machines. So if okay. you've gone into an MRI for your shoulder, they'll take this really cool 3D picture of what your shoulder looks like. FMRI is actually showing different areas of the brain, in this case, the brain light up. So he slides him in the fMRI machine, and he says, um, and I'm going to, because I I can't show you this, Um, he basically says, he says, think of yourself right now to these people. And this is not technically what happened, but like the left side of their brain lights up. So they're thinking about themselves right now. And then he says, okay, now think about Matt Damon, who somebody, everybody knows, but they don't actually know him. And then the other side of their brain lights up, the, the right side of their brain lights up. And then- he says, now think of yourself 10 years from now. And the same part of the brain that lit up for Matt Damon, someone they don't know, lights up for themselves 10 years from now. That's how disconnected they are to their future self. So he pulls them out of the fMRI machine and divides them into two groups. One is a control group, nothing happens. The other group, a couple of things they do. One, they every day they look at a photo of themselves, of um, themselves aged, like 10 to 15 years on Photoshop with like wrinkles and less hair. And they also write letters to their future self. So these are cognitive... Uh, interventions in some ways. Puts them back into the machine, and guess what happens? The control group, think about yourself now, think about yourself 10 years from now, same part for Matt Damon likes up for themselves 10 years ago, or 10 years from now. The people who had those interventions, who went through those exercises, when they say, think of yourself 10 years from now, that is now the same part that lights up for thinking about yourself today. So they are more now connected to their future self. So these workshops that we run, going back to how we're promulgating, is first and foremost on the ground game, and if you think about it, kind of a ladder of engagement, right? So our ladder of engagement for the, for, in, in the near term is getting folks better connected to their future self. And by the way, part of that process, getting connected to your future self, is also being connected to your past self and your ancestors. So there's two things going on. So we also ask people to think about what their parents or grandparents what decisions they made to allow those people to be in the room today right now who are going through the workshop at the same time projecting forward about their future selves and writing letters to their future self that 's the kind of ground game for a b 2 c where we 'll be building is getting folks to actually then think about generations two, three hundred years from now because i, I didn 't mention it are we 're not doing this out of you know just like general goodwill right i 'm not doing long path because I think it's just, it'd be a fun thing to do. I'm doing it because I'm seriously concerned about not just, um, I'm seriously concerned about the continuity of the human species and of, of civilization on this planet. I'm Not in the short term, not maybe over the next several decades. But if, you know, there, there's, a, there's a famous, there's a co- uh, coach, executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, he has his famous book, you know what the book is about based on the title of the book. What got you here won't get you there. And as a civilization, as, as a species on this planet, Homo sapiens going back 100,000 years, what got us here won't get us there. And this inner title now more than any other, more than let's say, we've seen civilizations rise and fall, Inca and Maya and others, but those were always isolated. But for the first time, we're facing existential threats that are on a, on a planetary scale. Obviously it's climate, but it's also usages of AI, biotechnology, and a whole host of other things, Mm -hmm. we need to start having conversations about solving the problems that we have and then also looking smartly and and with empathy towards some of the things that are on the table right now, like the ones that I mentioned, if we want to make sure we get through to the other side. I don't know what the other side is, but I think it's hopefully it's a a flourishing global human population on, on a thriving planet. Versus a nuclear wasteland. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different scenarios, but, you know, you look, at, you look at, you know, Mad Max. I mean, this is in the popular culture, right? One of the reasons Long Path is resonating is because the culture right now, the kind of collective unconsciousness is, we're seeing this. We're seeing this in The Hunger Games. We're seeing this in Mad Max movies. We're seeing a kind of ongoing cultural manifestations of our fear of features that are very bad and dark, right? And I'm not, I'm not a utopian. I'm not saying, oh, it can be all like, you know. Right unicorns and bunnies right the genesis planet in star trek yeah it's not that you know it'd be nice but like it's more that we're feeling this like everyone's Mm -hmm. feeling something's not quite right the anxiety
0: is 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 there no two ways about
1: it yeah i I think you'd be hard-pressed to pull
0: out anyone on any street in america who wouldn't or in the world in the world yeah yeah who who wouldn't have some identification with what you're saying well that's a good segue let me let me just take a couple of minutes You, you you were born in mexico You grew up in San Francisco. You got involved in politics uh, at a fairly uh, young age. What were some of the sort of mileposts, if you will, that got you interested in thinking about the future, just in your own biography, and thinking and sort of got you to this kind of place, you know, really describing almost a movement? How did you get here?
1: Well, when I think about how I got here, I I go back to the early 1920s. Right, so most people, even they, when they start their story, they're just like, "This is the year that I was born," but it's not about the year that I was born, right? Because on long path, I'm going to think a couple generations back. So in 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 the in the early 1920s, is actually when my father was born. So I'm a very young looking 43 but I'm 43. Um, <laughs> I'm a young looking 51. Yeah and yes. and also you're looking very svelte too. Thank you. Um, Thank you. and um so my dad was born in the early 1920s in Poland and right around the time the well not right around the time actually when pretty much Germany invaded was right around his bar mitzvah and he was in kind of a, a small shtetl town called Bronowic and very early on he lost two brothers to the front and then uh he ended up, He at one point they had turned his, they had created a ghetto, a Jewish ghetto, and he at one point had his father basically hit and killed in front of him, and the Nazis said, "If you bend down to help him, we'll kill you too." I mean, there's no no logical reason to this, obviously. Um, Soon thereafter, he escaped and and joined the Jewish underground, Um, and the reason that's obviously an important story because without it, I wouldn't be here. But at that point, he made a very strong commitment to kind of fight, not just for his own survival, because he could have just fled in in some ways, but to stop and fight and fight, and to fight the uh, fascism. And after the war, did a whole bunch of stuff and ended up in in Cuba, and after about 10 years of being there, just after the revolution, Castro kicks him out, right? They had a falling out. We're, We're still not sure what the falling out with Castro was, but there was a falling out. And he sends my dad to Mexico, where he... Joins an industrial pipes and valve business that some other family members were there, cousins who had left before the war. Now we're probably somewhere like in the late 1960s. My mom, who's born in San Francisco, who's an artist, had been uh, studying under Buckminster Fuller. And so if you don't know who Buckminster Fuller is, he is the guy who gave us a geodesic dome. He's the guy who gave us this idea of synergy. He was probably the first kind of holistic thinker that we had seen in the century who really kind of pushed the boundaries Of how we thought about ourselves as a species on the planet. One of the things that he says, or he said, he passed away, was we have the capital and technology to feed, clothe, and educate everyone on the planet. Why don't we? This was a question. It's a very, it's an obvious question, right? Why, like, why don't we? So what you have is my, you know, my mom. Well, not my mom yet, but you know, she she meets my dad. We're and we're we're born in Mexico, and so in in the the '70s we moved to San Francisco because once again rising anti-Semitism and a lot of bad politics, and we decided to leave. And so I'm I'm raised in this household with a mother who's an artist who, who in many ways, is educated by probably one of the classic systems thinkers, Buckminster Fuller, but a dad who both kind of politically, strategically, is unbelievably anti-fascist, right? He is kind of, you know, he wasn't aware of Karl Popper, who's a kind of proponent of the open society, but like he's very much an open society guy, right? As, to be honest, most Jews who have a connection to the Holocaust are like we know when societies get closed, it usually doesn't work well for us over the past several hundred, if not thousand, years. And so, coming up through that between kind of kind of an aesthetic, creative, but this political bias against closed systems. I was always interested both in the kind of the history, but also future because Buckminster Fuller was very much kind of a futurist, not a futurist in terms of like the future of like the jetpack or the monorail, but the future of what is a possibility of what we could do with this brain and communities and as a species. And so over the years, kind of going between running businesses and not for profits and, and doing political work, this was always kind of a heavy interest, such a heavy interest that my my honors thesis at UC Berkeley was called "Ithaca Lost," where I first kind of started playing with these ideas that as a society we had lost kind of our purpose and our end goal. And I won't bore you with like the deeper philosophy of the Frankfurt School, but that's where a lot of this kind of started coming from. And then coming up to, to now twenty eighteen, it became really obvious that what I was feeling and seeing, I was getting more more people were coming up to me as I kind of read about, you know, I, I did a short essay on Long Path in Wired Magazine and people were like, oh, like, what are you doing about that? And then honestly, after this last election, a confluence of factors made it pretty obvious that we should be launching really a, a movement for individuals at the individual level, but also within communities and communities of practice who want to start thinking about what does it mean to be a great ancestor and start making decisions through that matrix.
0: Okay, let me, let me sort of, narrow the focus a little bit. Um, you know, you, you, you've you talked about um, using a long path mindset or modality, if you will, decision-making matrix to think about education policy, environmental issues, water scarcity, overpopulation, even parenting. I think I get that. I, yeah. in, other, in other words, I think that you've done a great job of explaining um, sort of the, the broadly how this way of thinking can be applied to pretty much any long-term problem, long-term challenge we face. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think at a high level.
1: Or or even even or even a short-term decision, right? Like do I or do I not when my, when I go out to dinner with my kids and they start screaming and yelling, which they always do 30 seconds after we've ordered the food, right. do I take out an iPhone and put on a TV show or not, right? Yes. It was yes. That's a great <laughs> short path, right? It immediately quiets. It. Clash, and so,
0: Clash Royale in the kit, in my case, my family's. And case, sometimes
1: it's an emergency situation, and you but, you do you need to go to YouTube. But more often than not, if you think about what are the long term, and it's pretty heavy. But if you think about the long term ramifications of even a small decision like that, right? Or if you do it consistently over time, where you immediately go to the screen, am I going to feel bad at the end of this? You will yeah. not feel bad. Um, if, but if you think about that, what ends up happening is you are now like laying down a foundation within your family of how you deal and how you interact and the dynamics that are being set up that may not, will seem very small at first, but eventually you are teaching your kids how to deal with conflict and issues and go to the short term, the easy thing. Now, what ends up happening though is one day, you know, hopefully they will have kids, but the lessons they have learned will then manifest there. So if you think about it right now, it's totally fine at the dinner and you, and you, and you do it, don't feel bad. But 2,000 years from now, that decision about putting the screen in front of them, actually, we've done the math, has impacted hundreds of people because that's how big your lineage is, right? So, And look, there's no easy, there's no easy way. A, a lot of the like, con- conditioning that we have, you know, my neurosis, your neurosis, whatever, so much of that comes from generations before, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're now just at a point where we can actually start thinking about that mm-hmm. and making those decisions. So it's a, it seems like a small decision at dinner, and there should be no guilt because you know, more often than not, I I will pull out the screen, but sure. No, those no. are just, so it's not just it's water wise. and democracy and topsoil, but it's also the little decision. You know, do I eat this or not? Eat this. Do I do want to, you know, this goes back to the Walter Michelle experiment: one marshmallow or two marshmallow, right? And if you want to be a two-marshmallow person where you can kind of make short-term sacrifices for longer-term gain. It's like compound interest that actually adds up over time and becomes something that's great for you and great for those who come after you
0: that's a great that's that's fantastic that that really resonates I must say to narrow the focus a little bit um, you know one of the things that that I'm interested in and 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 that I think this podcast uh, is seeking to explore is issues around media and technology and innovation um, so let me let me let me ask you this and you can sort of uh, you can sort of wave me off uh, to the extent that that this is a wrong way of thinking about it. But, but let me give you a couple hypotheticals. CEO of Comcast calls you up and says his organization is freaking out by all the cord cutting going on with respect to distribution. And then with respect to content, they're getting their lunch handed to them by the big streaming services such as Netflix, Amazon, et cetera. They want to think about the futures as it relates to a traditional cable company that makes content for cable companies They're wasting money left, right, and center on Hail Mary, internal startups. They're investing in Comcast Ventures, all kinds of startups seeing very little yield. What are they doing wrong? How do they think about, what is a long path application uh, for a traditional media company? Without meaning to put you on the spot. Just just to sort of how we might think about this as as it pertains to...
1: Yeah. First and foremost, like I I think you know, one of the things that you said that I want just want to tease out is like they're wasting money on all these ventures, right? Like they're not right. Like having a a be, you have to be willing to quote unquote fail, but you have to learn in every single failure. So if they keep kind of throwing money into these ventures, into these new ideas, and they don't work, but they don't actually do a post mortem on it, then it's actually failing. Okay. Um, So that's one. Two. It's it's about. I mean, you know, I think about this like. We're on the fence of cord cutting, right? So we have Verizon Fios. I don't know how much we pay, and I have a, and a couple and we're just not watching anymore because more and more of what we're doing is streaming Amazon and Netflix. So look, they've already seen this, which is why they're moving to pipes, right? Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out how like they're moving into actually just being the providers of it. One so you, you talked about this earlier. So one of the things we we do at Long Path is we look at these issues through a lens of 21 different mega trends, right? And one of the mega trends is around a kind of the the empowerment of the edge. And the the, the edge in this case is people making their own content, recognizing a kind of what lo-fi is, and then those kind of bubble up and get pushed up. So a great example of that is the web series high maintenance on HBO, which I just kind of gave you the punchline, like start off as a web series, right? Kind of like a lo-fi, 10-minute episodes. And that came up and HBO smartly acquired it, right? So what I would tell Comcast in this case, in a long path approach, is one on the content side, you should definitely be thinking about like acquisition of type of content that's coming up, where you can just spin it up and add a little bit more, add a couple more microphones, a couple more lights, and meet people where they are and what's of interest to them, not what's interest, not what's of the interest to either focus groups or executives who, have, who think they have an idea of what does and doesn't work uh, from like, their, not their ivory tower, but from like Midtown, right? Like see what's actually resonating. And then the other thing is, you know, the these companies, especially the ones with the pipes, should be thinking more about, like, so if I was running Comcast right now, I'd be thinking about IoT. And specifically as, and look what masayoshi Son has is doing with his $100 billion vision fund. I mean, he's a true long pather, right? I, I disagree with some of his kind of ideologies in a way, but his $100 billion vision fund, where he's is basically, he, he, you can see the PowerPoint online, he says, this is the fund that we plan to run for the next 300 years. And here's why, because it's infrastructure. And so for Comcast, you'd be thinking about what resources can their pipes provide to all sorts of things in healthcare and other areas. AT&T has started doing this, by the way. They've recognized that at the B2B side, allowing their bandwidth to be used by sensors and other technologies may be more lucrative in the long run than classic voice. And with that, we come to Stormy Daniels. Just kidding. But we have to go there.
0: You can't let a podcast go by without a more joke. Yeah. Um, So, which was the AT&T reference for the record. All right, hypothetical number two. Jamie Dimon calls you up and says, mea culpa. Just happened yesterday, yeah. It did. Okay, good. Maya um, culpa. you know, I made some stupid comments about Bitcoin in the past. Clearly, blockchain and cryptocurrency are here to stay. Uh, what's going on, and how do I think about it from the perspective of a traditional financial institution?
1: I, I want to separate those two out. I want to separate out crypto from blockchain, right from uh, from distributed ledger systems. I think on on the crypto side and, and ICOs and Bitcoin, those last year were very much. Um, it was just the beginning. Like we just didn't even know what it was, and we were playing it, you know. And and now you're seeing ICOs partially be used to fundraise the next layer of whatever it's for, right? right. So, whatever the actual business is, but I think the ICO as a business. Is he was right, like that doesn't seem that's a that's tulips, right? There's, uh, there's
0: no two ways, there's a bubble going on.
1: Yes, there's a bubble um, going on at that level, but at the at what, what is undergirding it, right? When we think about this, goes back to what we talked about why, 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 why long path, why you know we see an end of, of centralized institutional trust, right? And so, what blockchain does is it takes out it recognizes the loss of trust in the centralized middleman, be it the central, the central bank. Or, or the or anyone who actually can hold title or you can check on, mm-hmm. and it becomes a direct A to B transaction layer that is completely 100% distributed and unhackable. And so with with Jamie, I would say, look, on the finance side, think like a freshman in a dorm room, right? Don't think about like what your company should be doing. Think about what would you do if you had like a million dollars and you were a freshman in the dorm and you knew what blockchain could do. Where is their friction? And by the way, what he runs is a massive centralized friction yep. zone. Where is there friction and what can we be doing? So that gets into questions of, of healthcare, of, of identity. of you know, Passwords will go away as we know it when it's 100%. All these different areas, as if, as were, if I was him, I wouldn't be thinking about purely on the financial side. I'd be thinking about what does it mean to reduce the friction or eradicate the friction of that middle layer of which has been very profitable and lucrative for him to date. Um, so that's what I would say. I'd say you're, you're probably right on the tulip side of the ICO coin side, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater.
0: You know, I, I, I would say don't throw the coins out with, there are some babies there as well. I mean, you, it's, it's very of difficult course, yeah. to pull apart blockchain and tokens. Yep. They are obviously what activates and gives the network effect to blockchain communities.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, look,
0: 100%. At the same time, there is a massive investing bubble going on. Yeah, but they're, and they're, you know we're we're going to see that next uh, next week here in New York with the consensus conference, but um, and we'll see who
1: takes a bath and hopefully yeah, it's mostly yeah. the investors that I can afford to. But I think exactly. the root at, at its root at its root blockchain um, will be as important to commerce transactions and defrictionalizing the economy and human affairs. Uh, at a level that we haven't seen probably in ten or fifteen years, in terms of I mean, it really is Internet three Yeah,
0: or the new Internet on uh, per Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I just I was just reading about um, uh, a company that is creating. I actually don't even know how this works, but it's creating a kind of a blockchain based OS to go on to mobile phones. So whereas you know the centralization and the and the and both the centralization and the encryption and the authentication of either Apple iOS or Android. They see is actually too much friction in the system. So, what does it mean to have that peer to peer? Which the funny thing about it is, it actually. When I was reading that, you know, everything that's new is old again. It like the way we think about blockchain and that kind of authentication reminds me of how ham operators used to talk about how they would authenticate their handle and their signal. Right. They didn't go through kind of this like a centralized database. They went. They went peer to peer. Peer to peer. Absolutely.
0: Last question: Um, How do you scale your organization to get greater? Purchase. Um, you're 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 fairly early. Yep. You know you're, you're. I think you're you're started what late 2017, early 2000, Yeah, was it this year
1: four months, four or five months into what, it. What
0: what how do you how do you kind of we understand sort of the ground game and that's obviously evolving. Yep. How do you think about scale? Is it, is it um, you know you can have a long path here? Is it conferences? How, how do you how do you kind of really you kind of translate this into maybe not a mass movement, but but yeah. something that, that, that moves the needle?
1: You know, so it, at first you may think this is totally disconnected from the previous question, but it's not, it totally is, right? Like if you think of, Blockchain as eradicating friction in the middleman. It's the same thing about movement. So, if you look at Black Lives Matter or Me Too or what's come out of Parkland, this idea of kind of leaderless movements, right? Where there's something, there's a zeitgeist or or a mindset that's put out there. The mindset, let's say, from Parkland is that power is now distributed, right? Across the system. And so, vis a vis the highly centralized NRA, and NRA can put up a really, really good fight. But eventually it's like the Grand Canyon, right? Like these, this constant drip will erode their power, like it'll erode all centralized power and power in these in institutions. Um, how we scale long path is the same way, is that we put it out there and we embolden people to take it and make it their own and get out of the way as quickly as possible, right? But while still maintaining some sort of cohesive boundaries about what is and isn't long path, Right. And so th- this is a struggle, right? So the question is like, so McDonald's works because you can walk into a McDonald's anywhere in the world and the Big Mac tastes the same. Starbucks. And, and what have Starbucks. You. And, and we love it. The, the model that we're trying to pursue is what is a kind of franchise, but not in a, in a retail storefront way, but in a franchise where you take it yourself and, and there are still some core tenants. And I, and I laid out those three pillars. Almost like teacher notes in a way. Yeah, it's very much yeah. like that. Um, so there's still a kind of a, a strong connection and understanding to what we're trying to do, what, what the telos of is, but you can still kind of make it your own. Yeah. And, and there's always these kind of exactly. and this goes this goes to the question of all the questions we've been asking, right? Is about kind of control, power, hierarchy, hierarchy, centralization, reducing friction. Long path is very much, I think, on the right side of history and on the right side of the futures by saying we want to put it out there and we want to work with folks and individuals and organizations who want to apply this mindset but we don't want to it can't be top down it can't be controlled it can't be centralized um and that's what we'll be figuring out And if anyone has any great ideas you can always reach out directly to me at ari at longpath.org
0: sounds great well that's a great place to finish thank you very much for coming in and it's been interesting fascinating thought-provoking
1: and um futurist oh, thank so you. thank you my pleasure thank you yeah.
0: That's a wrap on this episode of The Medium Rules with Alan Baldishin. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your own favorite podcast portal. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next time.